Hey everyone, the second Bible reading for today comes from Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 to 19. And this can be found on page 114, oh no, 147 from the Blue Pew Bibles. <clears throat> Do not forget the Lord. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and in all that you have multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my lands, on my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Well, um, welcome to church. My name is Pete, and uh, I'm the lead pastor of this church. If you're new or newish, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Um, this is a bit of a surprise. Karen, can you come up here for a second? She doesn't know this is happening. I'm a little bit nervous. Actually, I'm not, but she might be. She's like, what's going on? Well, a bit of context. Um, in January, we celebrate 20 years uh, wedding anniversary, so... Um, Thank you, thank you. Um, I still remember our wedding vows. So here we go. Are you ready? Hold my hand. Okay, we wrote these vows ourselves. In the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pledge you love for the rest of my life. I promise in sickness and in health, in times of poverty and wealth, in all times for worse or for better, I give myself to you alone forever. I promise in my priorities to show that your good matters more than my own. As Christ sacrificed to us his life, so I will love you always, my sister, my wife, and know this oath that springs from my heart that we'll be together till death do us part. Thank you. <laughs> you can sit down now. Um, okay. Yes, I still remembered it. I studied all week just to... Make sure I did. No, um, we do a lot of weddings. Uh, I've done heaps of weddings. And you'll know the wedding vows. Ours is, you know, our own. But almost every wedding vow has these lines, right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, right? In sickness and in health. You all know it, right? Have you ever thought, of you, thought, well, I get the for worse bit and the poorer bit and the sickness bit, but why are we pledging for better, for richer, for healthier, 
Why are those parts, the good parts, in the vows? I think you know the answer, don't you? That actually, good times and success and wealth in marriage and in any other part of life is as much of a test, isn't it? Perhaps even more of a test of whether or not you'll be faithful and keep your promises. So, you all might know this guy. Who, who is he? Han Solo. Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford has been married three times. Now, little known is his first wife, Mary, with whom he had two kids. They married in 1964 when he was a college dropout, had no money, just trying very hard to break into acting. They divorced in 1979. Now, if you know your Star Wars history like I do, you will know that Star Wars was released in 1977. It was just after the breakout success of Star Wars, a couple of years later, that they divorced. Now, we don't know other things that are going on in his marriage and so on, but it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Was it easier in the hard times when he had no money, was trying to break into acting, and then he all of a sudden got successful, and was that the time when it got hard to keep his marriage vows? Now, the same thing, believe it or not, can happen in our relationship with God, yeah? I mean, it's true that suffering and trials and difficult times can take us further from God, but you know what? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know that it's actually often the opposite times that's more dangerous, yeah? It's actually when when life is going well and things are successful. They're the easiest times to forget God, isn't it? I mean, think about the last time you had a great travel experience. And ask yourself, were you closer to God during those times? Did you spend more time in prayer and in His Word and fellowship during those times? From my experience, the answer is no. Now, Deuteronomy chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, the wider section today we're going to look at, is actually warning God's people about the dangers of exactly that. The dangers not of hard times, the dangers of good times ahead. And that has a lot to say to us too today. So let's pray and let's get into it. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you may again be speaking through me to allow these words that we're looking at in Deuteronomy chapter 8 especially, apply in a very powerful and life-changing way to every single person here, whether they are followers of Jesus or still investigating. Please speak to all of us here that we may encounter you and be changed by you. Amen. I've got a few points in your outlines. Um, We're in Deuteronomy. We're a few sermons in. We're nearly uh, through Deuteronomy. The last few chapters we'll actually cover pretty quickly. But we're coming to the end of the first section, if you remember, of the book. So chapters 1 to 11 is Israel at the place of decision. And remember I said one of the helpful ways of thinking about Deuteronomy, it's all about decision time. They've come out of Egypt, but it's been 40 years. This is the next generation. They're about to take hold of God's promises, and they're at the place of decision where Moses preaches three sermons to them. And we're at the end of the first section. Israel is at the place of decision. In chapter 11, at the end of this first section, we'll end with that decision spelt out pretty clearly in black and white. So just show you the last few verses of chapter 11. And Moses is going to say, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. 
The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord, the curse if you disobey the commands of the Lord, you've got pretty clear, right? You've got a decision to make blessing or curse, it's up to you. Now, the focus of these four chapters, 8, 9, 10, and 11, is a warning. And as I said before, it's not a warning because tough times are ahead. Here, the attentions turn to the good times that are ahead. And so we saw that in chapter 8. Um, have your Bibles open. We didn't read the whole of the chapter. We're going to cover the bits we haven't read. But look at chapter 8, verse 7. Look what it says there. Look at the good times that God is promising. Chapter 8, verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills. A land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. Remember I said the promised land is pictured as an Eden 2.0. It's a bit like that, isn't it? You see, in these times... It is vital that God's people don't get proud, satisfied with themselves, and forget God. Now, you see that both in chapters 8 and 9. So chapter 8, the bit we did read, look at verse 10 again. Right? When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws and decrees that I'm giving you today. We won't look at chapter 9, but in chapter 9, um, the, the beginning is, look, when the Canaanite nations, those nations that you will go in and conquer that I spoke about last week, when they fall like dominoes before you, because that's what's going to happen, when they fall like dominoes before you, remember, chapter 9 verse 4 is going to say, and we looked at it last week, remember, it's not because of your righteousness that God is driving out these nations, but because of their wickedness. Now, I wish we had time to look at chapters 9, 10, and 11 in more detail. We won't today. We'll really focus on 8. But just to give you a hint, if you're reading, and I hope you're reading it on your own, because they're great chapters, chapters 9 and 10 is going to focus on, don't forget, right? When the nations fall before you like dominoes, don't forget really how close you were to nearly being destroyed by God because of your sin, remember? Remember? Don't think that God is destroying these nations because of your righteousness. It's really because of their wickedness. In fact, chapter 9 will go on, chapter 10 will go on. You yourselves are so wicked that at Mount Sinai, you might remember from the Exodus, right? Just after Moses went up to get the commands of God, they set up a golden calf and started to worship that. They came this close to themselves being wiped out by God because of their sin. And only because of God's mercy and faithfulness and Moses' mediation were they spared. That's chapters 9 and 10. All right, God is saying, don't forget when times get good. So here's the solution. How can God's people then and for us now make sure we don't forget God and abandon Him when the times are good. Well, Deuteronomy 8, which we'll focus on right now, gives us the answer. And it's two, the next two points below on your outline. The first thing, point two, is we've got to know what God is doing when times are tough, right? We've got to understand and read the situation right. When times are tough, what is God doing? Now, chapter 8, again, for you, if you're reading on your own. Um, it's a really interesting little structure. It's a nice, lovely sandwich structure. And if you've been with our church for a while, you know, anytime there's a sandwich structure, I'm going to point it out because I like eating sandwiches. Um, but also, it's a really memorable way, right, of seeing how this chapter folds. And the main ideas in bold for you 
right? A, A dash, and right in the center, D, you get it, don't you? The main idea of chapter 8 is remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. In fact, those two words will come up about four times in this chapter. So what are they to remember? Well, let's have a look at some of the verses we didn't read. Chapter 8, verse 2. Chapter 8, verse 2. Follow with me. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Let's skip to the other side of the sandwich, the parallel bit. Verse 15, we read this earlier, let's read it again. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. Right? See what the main point of these hard experiences, the wilderness years were? Israel was in the desert for 40 years. There were hard years. Right? The desert is no picnic in the park. Verse 15, look at what it says. You're thirsty, it's waterless, there's snakes, there's scorpions. It's Australia, basically. It's a terrible, terrible place. Now, most of all, though, it's a humbling place. Now, you remember, Israel came out of Egypt with a flurry, didn't it? You had signs and wonders and miracles. The Red Sea was parted. There were ten plagues. They came out and we read in Exodus, they were loaded with plunder, gold and silver without having to fight one battle. Right? They must have felt like, at that point, the strongest, most powerful nation on earth. Yeah. But then we know that they hit a snag. Forty years they spend in the desert. Forty years of wandering in that thirsty, waterless, dangerous place. About a million of them. Forty years walking around in circles and circles and circles. Forty years seeing one after another of their strongest fighting men all die in the desert. Forty years of not having even one taste of the meat and the wine and the milk and the honey that they were promised. It's a long time. It's a humbling time. But here it is. Do you see what God wanted Israel to know about those years? He wanted them to know how to interpret it. He wanted them to know how to see rightly those 40 years in the wilderness. You see, they could see it as defeat, couldn't they? They could read it as, oh God, you've abandoned us. They could shake their fists at God. God, you're unfaithful. You're untrue to your word. Where's your promises? They could get disappointed. They could get jaded and disgruntled at the Lord. They could go around feeling hopeless and weak and defeated. But you see, what does Deuteronomy 8 tell us? How are they supposed to read their situation? Well, verse 2. It was a time of testing. And you see that also in verse 16. To humble and test you. Now, here, test is a positive thing. I know a lot of you Asians are thinking, test, horrible. Right? But here's the thing. You do not test something that is worthless. What do you test? You test precious metals. And you test the preciousness of a metal by putting it through a furnace, a fire. And you test it by refining them. Right? That the word here, test, is also the idea of refining. That's the idea here. See, God is saying, the desert, the tough times are your furnace. 
Now, why did I put you through that? It's not because you're worthless. I put you through that because at the end of it, I want to see hearts of gold. Because there's something so precious that I'm going to put you through the furnace so that you can see and I can see that you have hearts that are true and devoted to me. Yeah? You see verse 3? He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Yeah? Know how to read those desert years. The desert experience could be read as failure, as God's absence. Instead, though, you see, God is saying it was a time of teaching, of instructing, of actually experiencing God's goodness in discipline. Now, the idea in verse 5 is that God is, is a loving father, yeah? Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord is disciplining you, right? God is a loving father, and, and like any good father, he is more obsessed with the joy and happiness of his kids than they are. And in order to bring them into a place of greatest joy and greatest happiness, he needs to discipline them. Now, I know that for some of you, discipline is just a hard idea to, to, to grapple with. That discipline can be good because, quite frankly, we have imperfect parents and some of us have had really hard discipline from our parents. Perhaps you've even had abusive discipline from your parents and that can be really hard to get over. Now, that's not what God is talking about here. That's not the fatherhood of God. It may be even helpful to when you think about the Bible's idea of discipline because it's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in places like Hebrews to, <clears throat> because sometimes discipline has a negative meaning in our heads, to think of biblical discipline as kind of the idea of training, yeah? Training. So those of you who train for anything or, or have been trained in anything, if you have a personal trainer, you're trying to get fit, trying to train for an event, uh, sporting or otherwise, right, that tied up with the idea of training is the idea of discipline. Or for those of you who can drive a car, right, if you're an adult, most of you can drive, yeah? Uh, driving is a real blessing, yeah? Driving, you can get places, and it's so convenient, and, you know, if you have a car, it's great. But you do realize that you're driving a huge weapon, right? That this is a deadly, deadly thing that you are operating, especially at high speeds. Without discipline, you could not be driving. What kind of discipline? Well, if you've ever learned how to drive, your driving instructor, or perhaps even your parents, that's the kind of discipline we're talking about. Without good instruction, without good warnings, without both the positive of teaching you how to drive, giving you the experience, what is 150 hours you have to do nowadays even to get your P's, yeah? Right? Without the test to make sure that you are qualified to drive, right? Without all of those things, the training, the hours, the testing, that's discipline. That's the biblical idea of discipline. Without that, you would be a danger to yourself and others. But with it you get to experience the joy of driving. Now, that's what Israel's experience in the desert was supposed to be like. It was to humble them, to refine them, and to teach them things, to train them, so they can learn things and grow in ways that couldn't have happened any other way. That's what Deuteronomy is saying. Verse 3, remember? They were fed by manna. 
Now, we don't have time to look at the passages where God provided miraculous bread from heaven for them. But if you remember, or if you know the story, um, when God gave them manna, He actually gave them manna enough for one day at a time. He didn't give them enough manna to last a whole week, a month. They had to wake up every morning for new bread. And if they kept bread overnight, unless it's a Sabbath day, if they kept bread overnight, it would be rotten in the next day. Because every day they had to go out and get new manna. What was God trying to teach them? What was He trying to train them? They had to live every single day on the promises of God. That's what He was trying to teach them. God said He would provide every morning. They would have to trust that He would provide And that's what it means, right? Teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but on every promise, every word that comes from the mouth of God. What a training tool that was. How about verse 4? Your clothes were not worn out. Your feet didn't swell. I have kids. It's impossible that they don't wear out clothes. So we're talking about supernatural provision. What was God teaching them? Imagine being an Israelite. You live each day knowing that there's food on your plate because of a miracle. Imagine walking each mile in the desert knowing that God's power prevented your feet from swelling, that His provision prevented your clothes from wearing out so that you always had something to wear. Imagine being guided, as we know from from the Exodus story, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire to give you light and security and warmth every night. Imagine living 40 years with that. Imagine experiencing so many miracles that they become commonplace. See, that was what it was like in the desert for Israel. And so if only they had eyes to see, they would see that in the desert, even though it was a place of humbling, that was actually the place where God was with them. And he was with them in the desert to train them so that they would be so dependent and reliant on him and his word that it had just become a habit. So that in the future when they got into the land and food no longer needed to drop from the skies, it was just everywhere, and the clothes could be made from the very things that they grew and harvest and they were rich, That when things got good, they would be so trained that they would then not forget God. Right? Do you see, this is the goodness of God in action for those who have eyes to see. And so the point is, it is all about how you read your wilderness situation. Israel could have felt abandoned, rejected by God. Instead, God was never closer than when they were in the wilderness. Now, I hope you already are understanding how this might apply to us, right? There are so many of you here. Right now, you feel like you know that you are in the wilderness. It's hard. For all sorts of reasons. Maybe illness, physical or mental. Maybe loneliness, depression, anxiety, unemployment, relational breakdown, infertility, loss of loved ones due to death, marriage problems, singleness, habitual sin, addictions. You might just feel really far from the Lord. 
You just don't feel any joy and peace. You're in the wilderness. And God, your Father, wants to say to you this morning, are you reading the situation rightly? Are you reading it rightly? Do you know that your Father in heaven would not allow one ounce of suffering into your life unless it was determined by Him, measured out by Him, permitted by Him, purposely given to you? And He does not allow one ounce of suffering into our lives without promising to give us more of Him. More power, more joy, more peace, more intimacy if we're willing to turn to Him, press into Him, cry out to Him and ask Him. Do you know that in your wilderness times, God can be ever so near, so close, much more than you could possibly imagine? Do you know that? If only you would cast yourself unreservedly and persistently to seek Him. You know, I first preached this sermon over 10 years ago. 2008 was my first version of the Deuteronomy 8 sermon. I couldn't imagine the kind of things I'd have to go through in the last 10 years. I kind of struggles and discouragements and difficulties in life and ministry, even over the last couple of years. And so when I wrote these words, I look back now and I think, oh, Dell's naive. <laughs> I knew the truth. I was preaching it. And I don't think I'd experienced it really. Well, maybe, but not, not in the way that I could have imagined. But I get to stand up here and testify to you that these words are true. And I couldn't have known that I'd be able to preach it and experience it. But the tough times, God has been so near. So close. Because sometimes I didn't know that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. Do you know that? Do you know that every winter is preparation for spring. It may not seem like it at the moment. In the midst of tough times, it's always like it never ends. <laughs> it does feel like that. But you see, God is saying also in, in here in Deuteronomy, the wilderness is only for a time. It was 40 years, okay? So it probably hasn't been 40 years for you yet. But even for Israel, look at verse 16. Look at verse 16 again. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and test you. Look at this so that in the end it might go well with you. See, the times of testing are always in order to position us for more blessing. You got that? The times of testing are always there to position us for more blessing. It is always the case. God is refining, training, disciplining, positioning us for more abundance, for more blessing. And the lessons in the desert are to prepare us for that. Now, I want to be careful I'm not saying that what is on the other side of your suffering is necessarily what you think it might be or want it to be. 
So, I mean, for example, if you're suffering from long-term sickness, I do pray that God would bring healing, complete healing, perhaps, even in this life. But that's not a promise that God necessarily gives. And I'm not promising that that's necessarily going to be the case, that in this life, before you see Jesus, before you get your new bodies, that you're going to be completely healed. Some illnesses we will not get healed from in this life. But what I'm saying is this. There is another kind of blessing There is another kind of richness, another kind of abundance waiting for us on the other side of our wilderness experience. That even if we never get healed until heaven, God has got something for us that He wants us to enjoy on the other side. And maybe, I don't know what that is for sure, but it could be a a deeper and richer walk with Him. Or sometimes what happens if you've experienced a certain type of illness, even if you don't get healed, God uses your prayers or your encouragements for other people suffering in that way. And your ministry to them becomes that much more powerful. And perhaps your prayers even become that much more powerful. We've experienced that in our own lives. Or maybe that God shows you there's rich relationships with other sufferers, with people that you would never have bound yourselves with if you hadn't gone through. I don't know what it is. But all we know is that God says He will never, ever, ever waste suffering. Never waste it. It is always there to lead to increase, to blessing. Suffering prepares us for that. It positions us to be ready to receive the greater blessings because God loves us too much to release blessings on us if we're not ready for them. You got that? God loves you too much to release blessings on you if you are not ready for them because the blessings can destroy you if you have not been trained, humbled, learnt in the wilderness years to really rely on God. And that leads to my next point. Know how to enjoy God's blessings when times are good. See, not just bad times we need to remember the Lord, it's the good times. And that's really the the thrust of chapter 8. And the key to not forgetting God when times are good is very simple. Right, very simple. How do you not forget God when times are good? Well, it's to give honor where honor is due. Um, Let's look at at verse 10 to 14 again. Verse 10. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I am giving you to this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied... When you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Right? When times are good, praise the Lord, it says. But here, please don't think too narrowly. Praise is not just singing songs or saying hallelujah. The opposite of praise is there in verse 14. The opposite of praise is what? When your hearts become proud. The opposite of praise is pride. You got that? The opposite of praise is pride. And so you see that in verse 17. Verse 17. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. Right? The opposite of praise is pride. They mustn't think that just because they now grow their own food, drink from their own wells, patch up their own clothes, make their own shoes, that it's any less God. 
providing for them and blessing them. You see that? That's why the desert years were so important. And they were to carry those lessons into the promised land. Now, I think we in the West are most in danger of doing this, right? Giving ourselves the credit for God's blessings. So you might be thinking, it's my hard work at school, getting to university, getting to the right degree, um, graduating with honors, getting the right job, working hard at my job, getting promoted. I work really hard for all the things I have, the house, the car, the whatever. Do you think that if you were born in another country, even in this day and age, say, for example, Venezuela, Venezuela, where the economy has basically all but collapsed, where inflation is something like 8 million percent, no joke, do you think a laborer in Venezuela works any less hard than you? But their labor results in nothing. Did you get to choose to be born in Australia or migrate to Australia? No. God put us all in the places we're at. Any blessing we have, any ability to work hard, He gives to us. How dare we take credit for everything that He allows us to have, even the health. Now, you've ever been sick had to take extended time off work or study, you'll know. Right? You cannot take even your health for granted. If you're in a good season in life, you're not in the wilderness, do not forget what you do learn in the wilderness. Don't forget to live in humility and dependence and gratitude to God. And it's dangerous if you haven't learned those things, for God to release blessing on you. Because it will destroy what is most precious, your faith. Often the test of how we do in good times is generosity. Are you generous in good times? And by the way, you can't be generous in good times unless you've also learned to be generous in tough times. But if you're in a good time and you understand that everything comes from God, then you will be open-handed with your successes. You will give rather than hoard. You will share rather than indulge. And I'm not just talking about money. Money is just one of the blessings or material things. If you're in a good time, a good place, your relationship with God or others is thriving, you're enjoying that, be generous with that. Be generous with what He's doing in your life. Let it overflow to other people. All right? Generosity, that's how you know if you've learned that lesson. All right, conclusion. Know what God is doing when times are tough. Know how to enjoy his blessings when times are good. And here's the thing. We have a perfect model of that, don't we? The perfect model we have is the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't turn to it, but in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says that even though Jesus was the Son of God, even Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering. You got that? He, Jesus, who was perfect, still had to learn. He had to be trained. He had to be disciplined in the positive sense. He had to be tested so that he would learn how to be obedient in his suffering. And you see this, don't you, in Jesus' temptation. 
Let me read out for you. And this will all sound very familiar all of a sudden, won't it? Once you understand Deuteronomy. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, no accident, it's 40, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, if you read on, you'll see that the, the Satan's, uh, Satan's temptation to Jesus is pretty much the same each time, just a different, you know, uh, like a different variation of the temptation. He's really saying to Jesus, Jesus, you need to now take matters into your own hands. And by that, he means achieve glory and blessing without the suffering, right? You can have glory and blessing now if you do all these things but you don't have to suffer, right? He was promising Jesus, offering Jesus glory without the cross. Each temptation was that. The promised land without the wilderness, that's what he was offering. And in each case, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy and says, no, there would be no promised land without the wilderness. There would be no blessing without suffering. There would be no glory without the cross first. And isn't it good that he did pass the test? Because he endured the cross in our place for our sin, because on the cross he was abandoned, then you know what? No matter what wilderness you think you're going through, or even how you've messed up and you feel like I'm responsible for the wilderness I'm in, no matter what, because he was already crucified for you and me on our sins on his body, and he was already abandoned in our behalf, no matter where you are, you will never, ever be abandoned by God. Yeah? He learned to go to the cross first. And then, because now he is in glory, he freely and generously gives from all of his glory all that is his to us. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is what Jesus has done for you. Today, you can trust in him, follow him, and know that from this day onwards, as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, you will never, ever be abandoned. So are you in tough times? Are you? I suspect for a lot of us the answer is yes. Well, it won't last forever. Know what God is doing in these times. Lean in closer. Even though every instinct in you when times are tough is to draw away from God. Because maybe you're angry at Him. Maybe you're disappointed at Him. Maybe you're fearful. No, no, no. Lean in closer. Even if it's with tears, lean in closer. Or are you in good times? Well, that won't last forever either. Know how to enjoy these blessings with humility and thankfulness and generosity. Let's get the band up. Let's get ready to sing. Let's pray. Why don't you take a moment to just take stock of what God might have been saying to you today. If you're in the wilderness, in tough times, what is he saying to you? How has he spoken to you? What do you need to do? What do you need to change? How do you need to respond? If you're in good times, what's he saying to you? How has he spoken to you?
Let's pray. Father God, I want to pray that the work of your spirit through your word may only just now be beginning as you take these words and really impress them into our hearts. Whether we're in the wilderness, feel like things are going well. We don't want to miss what you're doing. So I pray that you would please speak powerfully and continue to do that in the coming week. Amen.